This morning, we're back in a very interesting section of 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And I spent a long time yesterday working on this, and Keith and I were on the phone trying to reconstruct what actually was going on. The big problem with both First and Second Corinthians is that there's so much we don't know. We don't know exactly who the false teachers were. We don't even know exactly what they taught other than kind of generalities. And, we, and so we're trying to reconstruct from all the data and all the evidence in Acts and in Second Corinthians what happened. And we have a little reconstruction of the situation that we're going to do for you this morning that will take us back into Acts and we're going to put forth a theory about what we think was going on in Corinth and who these false apostles were. But before we do that, let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for another Sunday for us to gather with our beloved brothers and sisters in Christ that we might set ourselves under the means of grace to hear the word. Today, Lord, we receive communion, and as we do, may we be very aware of the great price you paid for our salvation and the great anticipation we have of your return and our gathering together with you. Lord, we pray for the scattered flock around the world that you would encourage them, help them find the remnant, bless them, and may the means of grace reach out to them as well. Thank you, Lord, and give us wisdom and understanding as we open your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we have a very interesting passage, and that's 2 Corinthians 11.4, really getting into the heart of the issue here. 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 4. There's a triad here. Let me read the passage. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. Now, this is picking up a thought all the way back from verse 1, where he says, I wish that you would bear with me. And Paul's irony, there's an ironic rebuke going on in this section. He has to ask them to bear with him, the one who's preaching the true gospel and the true doctrine of Christ, the one through whom God worked to found the church at Corinth and they existed because of Paul. He has to plead with them to bear with him, but they're gladly bear with the false apostles who teach a different gospel. And so this is a church that gave him a lot of trouble. Okay. Problem, this is a problem child church here. They bear with people who have false teachings. Now, uh, let me give you the big picture and then I have lots of other things to talk about today. It says, if one comes, and it's singular, and so there's a discussion amongst the scholars, he who comes, is what it literally says, why is it singular? Is there only one false teacher, which is probably not the case? So it's either a collective singular, one who's either the ringleader or, or one standing for the whole group, but it's someone from the outside, undoubtedly, who comes, that's why it says that, he who comes from somewhere, and to an already existing church and has some different teaching, some different gospel. And the triad is another gospel, a different spirit, or another Jesus, a different spirit, a different gospel. Now, 
There's a change in the Greek, and the scholars even debate whether it's significant or stylistic. Another is alan, and different is heteros. Now, sometimes those two words are used to say something similar but different, and heteros would be of a total different nature, where we get, you know, we have words with hetero, you know, in our English language, it means different. Now, some scholars think that that's significant, and others would say it's just stylistic. But whatever the case, it's not good to have a different Jesus, whether he's Alan or Heteros. That's bad. It's not good to have a different spirit and a different gospel, whatever the nature of these might be. Now, let's analyze this. How do you end up with a different Jesus. Because there's only one Jesus. So how can you have a different one? Yeah, well, it's a different definition of the person and work of Christ. Um, for example, I don't know if you saw Eric, Eric Barger's email thing that was uh, discussing that ISA was talked about at the inauguration thing. But his point was this, and you can decide whether it's valid or not. ISA would be the Arabic word for Jesus. But as a matter of fact, if you take the Quran's definition of Jesus, it would be a different Jesus. Okay, so technically, it would be a different one. Uh, you could say the same thing with the Mormons. The Mormons would say Jesus, they'd use the same word, and they're denoting the same person that we're talking about, right? They would be denoting, when, they, when a Mormon says Jesus, they would be denoting the person who actually lived in Galilee, and did the things that the Bible says he did. But who is the Mormon Jesus? Yeah, the spirit brother of Lucifer. Exactly. And and Jay Howard was here talking about that. So that would certainly qualify as a different Jesus, would it not? So a different Jesus would probably be talking about the actual Jesus that the Bible discusses, but defining him differently. There's a lot of ways you could define Jesus differently. You could have a Jesus, and this was all the Christological debates and heresies of the early church. You could have a Jesus that was a created being. You could have a Jesus that became divine when the Holy Spirit came upon him. Okay? You have the Arian Jesus. You have all sorts of different ways that Jesus could be defined. So some of the early church councils spent you know, lots of time defining the biblical Jesus on biblical terms. And they came out with some very good definitions that we would still hold to to this day, such as the definition of Chalcedon. Is that, Scott, do you remember, is that on our reference link, Chalcedon? Definition of Chalcedon? Okay, you don't remember. Um, hey, there's a couple new, talk about reference links. Quick advertisement here. We put a couple things up there so people know they're there. Oh, yeah, we put Tim Kelly's, um review of the book, The Shack. People have been writing me, asking me if I'm going to review the book, The Shack. Chalice did such a fantastic job, there's no use me duplicating it. All right? And besides, I don't want to read the book, to tell you the truth. <laughs> uh, now, so that's on our reference link, and he actually made a real nice version of it, and you can download the PDF. If you, so if you go to our reference link under TwinCityFellowship.com sermons, reference links, there's the check. And then the other one that I put up there 
because several people asked me, I mentioned in Sunday school, is Luther's commentary on a passage in Peter about guarding the sheep from the wolves. Okay? So that's up there too. So you can get that now off of our reference link. Luther on guarding the sheep. Now back to a different Jesus. So the Jesus that Paul preached is the one defined by the Scriptures. And you might say, well, the Scriptures define it. Why do you have the definition of Chalcedon or why do you have the councils and the creeds? Well, because of the heresies that arose in church history. You have to... Something is fine until somebody challenges it. And so Arius almost took over the entire church with his false definition of Christ, claiming that he was a created being. So you have to fight the battle and define it. And there's battles that arise in every generation. Now, somebody has a different Jesus who came to Corinth. We think that this if one comes, uh, it says here, if one comes... And Lenski, who I've been using Lenski more, I, I've got to quit getting more commentaries or I'm never going to get prepared for church ever. I, get, I, get, I keep finding more good ones and I read and I read and I read and I read and the week is ate up. But Lenski says that he who comes is a, if as is the case. There are several different kind of conditionals in the Greek language. And this would be a condition of reality. So, meaning that people actually did come and did preach a different Jesus, and the people who would receive the gospel of a different Jesus would have a different spirit, a different gospel. Because the Holy Spirit comes only through the true Christ. Okay, To receive the Holy Spirit, one must come to Jesus Christ on his terms and believe the gospel. People who come to Christ and believe the gospel actually do believe the Holy Spirit, and that's why that becomes a test of the spirits. Because the one who confesses Christ does so by the Holy Spirit. And I don't know if you remember, I did a sermon where I took all the way through the New Testament showing what happens when the Holy Spirit comes upon somebody. They confess Christ. And the key passage about that is 1 John 1, I mean 1 John 4, 1 through 5. That's the test of the spirits. So a different spirit would be one that someone receives because they listen to a different gospel that defines a different Jesus. And that's exactly what happens. Paul gives no specifics about what this false gospel is, and so this causes a lot of theological speculation about what it is, and you have to try to reconstruct this from what evidence we have in the New Testament. So let me... I've got a bunch of quotes here I wanted to use. This is a, a New International Commentary by a guy named Barnett, and here's his theory about what this was going on here. For his part, God set the Corinthians Christ's word, having anointed them, sealed them, and given them the down payment of the Holy Spirit, thus confirming them to be a congregation of the new covenant. All of this comes from earlier in 2 Corinthians. The entire process is proclamation of Christ, and their reception of the Spirit is summarized by the word gospel. You received the gospel. Moreover, it was by Paul's coming to Corinth when he proclaimed Christ and they received the Spirit that he betrothed them as brides-to-be to Christ. Remember our previous discussion about that? They're betrothed to Christ. And it's Paul's job to keep them pure until the second coming. All right? 
in prospect of the consummation at the parousia. Now, here's his view. In our view, it points to a preaching of Jesus the Nazarene, whose historic Jewish persona was being emphasized at the expense of his risen lordship by the newly arrived Hebrew missionaries in Corinth, 11.13 and then 11.22-23a. Such a Jesus may have been proclaimed as circumscribed within the continuing Mosaic Covenant. And this is what we're going to defend. Keith and I are going to defend this view. That, that, this would explain why Paul, as a minister of the New Covenant, of New Covenant Spirit and Righteousness, 3, 6, and 8 through 9, which had overtaken and made obsolete the Old Covenant, would refer to the current preaching of a gospel as different from that which the Corinthians received from the Apostle. So that view is that the interlopers, the I don't know, interlopers. It's not about golf. Golf is looper, right? Okay, interlopers come, and they have a Jewish only. Now, Jesus, of course, is Jewish, but they just want to emphasize the Jewishness, and they're a gospel that requires them to keep the law, if that theory is correct. And I think there may be some good evidence for that. Yes. Yeah, so, so what's happening in Corinth, according to Barnett, is something similar that Paul was fighting that had already taken root in Galatia, that people from Jerusalem had arrived to take over the church. Yes, that, that's our theory. And I think that there's some good valid evidence for it. Um, there's some other things that we know about these opponents because of... Paul's, and we'll, this will come up more in verse 5, but they're saying Paul's not very good. He's unskilled in speech. Okay? So that's, here's what, here's how Garland talking about this. The opponents came with eloquence, a swaggering boldness, and persuasive words that proclaimed a testimony about themselves rather than Christ. Not only did they trespass on Paul's allotted field, but they sowed that field with the tares of a false gospel. The preaching is false, a different Jesus spirit and gospel that can only lead Christians away from Christ. Paul therefore asked that the same measure of toleration should be granted to him that is according a teaching of error. This gospel apparently places greater emphasis on human standards as valid criteria for evaluating others, on rhetorical showmanship, on racial heritage, and on ecstatic visions. They may talk about Christ, but Christ crucified is not the heart of their gospel, nor does it influence the way they live. In contrast, his attack on the Judaizers, who infilled... Well, see, he, now here's the guy who thinks this is a contrast. In contrast to his attack on the Judaizers who infiltrated the Galatians, Paul does not single out any particular false doctrine. He doesn't specify. So that's why there's all of this talk. You wouldn't believe the pages of material that have been written trying to identify the false gospel and the false teachers of Corinth. Lenski. Lenski has an interesting... <laughs> I'm just illustrating to you that there's, this is a, something you have to be kind of a sleuth to figure out because Paul doesn't come out and say exactly what it is. So you've got to figure it out from, from the evidence that we do have and his debate with these guys. Here's what Lenski says about it. Why does Paul then not attack these false apostles on what 
would thus be the chief issue, their false gospel. The question is why? Why doesn't he just say, here's their false gospel? Uh, Lenski, why does Paul fight about the issue of his own person as he does in these chapters as if this were the chief issue? Paul tells us throughout, these false apostles made Paul's person the supreme issue. Unlike the Judaizers in Galatia, they used craftiness in this. They intended to establish themselves as genuine apostles of Christ. Verse 13, that is no marvel, says Paul, for Satan tries to appear as an angel of light. Verse 14, they held their real teaching in abeyance until they should have destroyed Paul's standing in Corinth and have fully established themselves. So let me comment on that, and I agree with it. They're trying to make it about persons, okay? And they're trying to be claiming to be the apostles, the super apostles, Paul calls them, the hyper apostles. And they're attacking Paul's person, they're attacking his rhetoric, and they're attacking his appearance, they're attacking things about Paul in hopes that they can take his place and be the ones who are the apostles. Then, having taken the place, then, then they come out in the open with their false teaching. Because now, if they're really apostles, then you have to listen to them because Christ sent them. So, get the position, then give them the doctrine. That's probably when I think Linsky has a good point. Yes, sure. well, That's what I was going to ask you. That they're seeking to validate themselves and discredit him, and then they can sell yep. their bill of goods to these people. Yeah, and this happens to this day. This happens to this day. Ch- churches are split sometimes when... Someone will come in with, with some sort of charismatic leadership and try to get themselves into the position of senior pastor or at least in the position of having more respect from a given congregation than whoever was there. And, and the, the, the aim is usually to bring in some teaching that's not correct. Because if the true gospel is preached by all of the leadership, there's no worry. you don't have to compare one against the other. Whoever you put in the pulpit, they're going to preach the true gospel. Okay, but if you try and establish your persona to get power, then out comes the wicked doctrine. Uh, here's what it says uh, by Lenski. They held their real teaching in abeyance until they should have destroyed Paul's standing. I said that already. For this reason, Paul compares them to the serpent and to Satan. Aha, remember he said, as the serpent beguiled Eve? The serpent didn't come in and tell them, you should do some wicked thing so that you die. He came in as a deceiver. He came in pretending that his message was actually going to do them some good. All right? It's going to make you like God, and you're going to know good and evil. So the serpent comes in as a trickster. The Corinthians were still in the dark as to what these liars really taught in regard to the gospel. Paul rightly joins the issue which they drew on his own person. This alone stood in the open. The other was concealed. So I think that's a real good reading of 2 Corinthians. The reason Paul's defending his person throughout is because that's what's attacked. Because if they could denigrate his person, then they can denigrate his gospel, and then they can put themselves in charge and have a different spirit, different gospel, different Jesus. Yes? Uh, Another thing, these teachers out there in the modern days now, how can... I think there's a lot of confusion out there about confessing Christ. Maybe you can explain what it truly means to confess Christ and what the elements need to be involved there. Okay, what does it truly mean to confess Christ? Well, the confession of Christ is about his person and his work and the claims of the gospel. All of this is important. 
To confess Christ is to confess that he is God incarnate. And to confess Christ is to confess that he wasn't just a good teacher or a doer of good works, but he was God and man, fully human, fully God, lived a sinless life. Everything the Bible says he did, he did. It's true. It's literal. He did the miracles. He walked on water. He turned the water into wine. All of these things. He predicted his own resurrection from the dead. He shed his blood to avert God's wrath against sin. He was bodily raised on the third day. And we say bodily because the liberals will believe in a spirit revel. Uh, Harry Emerson Fosdick, the, the great liberal of the 1920s, uh, that was the figurehead of the modernist fundamentalist debate, Fosdick believed in the resurrection, but it was a spiritual one. So, so he was a heretic. He didn't believe in bodily resurrection. And he bodily ascended into heaven. And as it says in Hebrews, he's a high priest who sits at the right hand of God and making intercession for us and giving us access to the throne of grace. That's Jesus Christ. Now, the gospel is confessing that, confessing the Christ defined by Scripture and confessing the resurrection, confessing the cross. Any of those things are deleted out of there. Now you've got a different Jesus and a different gospel. And and what we're saying that happens here is that while the open attack was them against Paul and we're better better than Paul, there's a subtle attack that wasn't very obvious yet that the teaching that they were bringing in appeared to be the gospel, but it wasn't. It wasn't. And and that the confession was, was lacking. Yes. And I think a lot of the evidence points to the fact that they had a Jesus who was Jewish, which he was and is, but Jewish in the sense of teaching, keeping the law, rather than the gospel and the liberty we have in Christ. So it was very much like the Galatian problem, but it wasn't in the open like it was in Galatia, so Paul could deal with it right straight up. Because because if you hide it, then uh, once you have power, then you can do whatever it is you want to do. Now, we know some of the problems that are out in the open in Corinth. Uh, one of them is arrogance, the, the love of philos, philosophy, Sophia, the love of personality cults, schismatic, dividing the body of Christ along sociological lines. That's in 1 Corinthians 11. And there were other problems that denigrated the message of the cross. And so Paul has to defend his person in order to defend his gospel in order to keep this church away from the wolves. And that was the battle. Now, yesterday, we spent some time, Keith and I, this is from the Word Commentary. Where did I have that whole thing there? All of this, look at it. All of this is just about trying to figure out who these guys are. All right? Somebody had a lot of time on their hands. <laughs> Somebody really smart. So I read through all of this stuff, and comes our, and this commentary is, is directly from the Greek. Okay, here it is. Here's the one. Finally, after all of that, Dr. Martin comes to his own reconstruction. So let me just read this reconstruction to you, and then we're going to go into Acts and see if this can be defended. All right? Who was the other Jesus? What, what was going on? Who are these false apostles? It says here, at the center of this presentation is the postulating of a group of Hellenistic Jewish missionaries who modeled their lifestyle and preaching 
on wandering religious teachers in antiquity, known by the general term of divine men, Theoandres. The pattern was that of prophecy, miracle working, and a powerful presence with letters to accredit them. But all of this you can find evidence for in 2 Corinthians. The starting point is the discussion over self-recommendation and boasting, but it comes to a practical matter, matter that underlies much of chapters 10 through 12. Paul's refusal to accept maintenance at Corinth, the practice that these opponents found incredible since they claimed to be religious teachers who deserved rewards. Paul, on the other side, refused such honors and held his in low esteem since he carried no marks to credit his ministry. This brought out in the threefold analysis of 11.4, these missionaries that proclaim another Jesus. In their estimate, Jesus is a figure of charismatic power, the theos omnere of the early miracle stories, and essentially kata sarka, 5.16, according to the flesh. This is the core of the opposition to Paul, since the litmus test is Christological. As they pattern their ministry on the Jesus figure who resembled the Moses Philonic Judaism, that Philo, a philosopher, they claimed that they were the mouthpiece of divine revelation in the new age of eschatological fulfillment. On all accounts, they were where they contrast their ministry and behavior with Paul, he cuts a sorry figure. He says, I am nothing, 12.11. He is ineffectual as a speaker, sickly in body, unable to cure his malady, timid, cowardly, and failing to come to Corinth, lacking in all demonstrable signs of power. That's what they're saying. Paul's response is to assert the validity of his gospel as the true power of God, expressed in the suffering Lord, Kurios, his favorite term, who came to his glory only along the road of humiliation and self-abnegation. Paul's ministry shares these qualities, since he does not proclaim himself such other than a servant, doulos. See the difference? Their Jesus was this charismatic power figure who would be delightful to the minds of them. Paul's Jesus was a suffering one. Okay, a suffering Jesus whose main point is the cross. So you denigrate the cross, and then you take Jesus as the miracle worker away from the cross, and you got this uh, figure that looks more appealing. And then these people are going to portray themselves patterned after the Jesus that they're teaching. They're walking in that Jesus' footsteps, yes. Yeah, so it's, it's like a pre-health wealth gospel type of approach that they're taking a Hebrew Jewish health wealth gospel, and if you obey these laws and do what we say, you will be blessed now. It's like a kingdom now concept yeah. being preached there coming from Jewish philosophers from Jerusalem. Right. So the cross is the thing that is at issue, and you can see that by the very beginning of 1 Corinthians 1. Paul goes after the issue in 1 Corinthians 1 that he knows that his message of the cross is not popular. The Jews are seeking signs and wonders. You see that in this reconstruction. The Greeks are seeking wisdom. They're offering that. They're offering a Hellenistic Jewish wisdom after the manner of Philo. Okay, and Paul says that we preach Christ crucified. And he admits that that message of Christ crucified offends everybody. It doesn't attract the Greeks, and it doesn't attract the Jews. But what does it do? It saves the lost. (laughs) 
It's the power of God unto salvation for all those who believe, the Jew first and also the Gentile or the Greek. And so therefore, Paul is, is preaching that, living that, and these guys come in and they look at him and they say, he just doesn't stand up to our standards. And that's the contrast. So on one side, Paul's preaching a Christ that is a servant that suffered and died, and Paul wouldn't take money from the Corinthians for himself. And the other people are, pre- are preaching signs and wonders for the Jews and wisdom for the Greeks and trying to amass everybody else. So the contrast is very stark. Absolutely. That's, I believe that is the correct reconstruction of the situation. They're, they're giving everybody what they want. Wisdom that they borrow from the Greeks. And there were a lot of Jewish people that were Hellenistic and borrowing and portraying Moses as their great teacher and, the, and their wisdom sort of combined with the Greek idea, this is especially in Alexandria. And then you have the lack of the suffering and stuff, the health and wealth and stuff that others, we're going to give you your signs and wonders and we're going to give you your wisdom. In a sense, you could say they were the inventors of the seeker church. And then, then you give us your money. <laughs> and then you give us your money. And they, they literally were saying any good uh, orator, any good rhetorician is worth his pay. And if Paul isn't going to be paid, it shows he's no good. If he was good, he'd be making some money at this. So that is, I think, a very good reconstruction. and really makes a lot of sense to me, so I'm going with it. <laughs> Teaching the Corinthian letters is the most difficult in the New Testament. Yes, David. Is there any clue as to what these teachers might have said was the purpose of Christ's coming? Because what we're hearing would be that they'd be promoting things that would draw followers to themselves, setting themselves up as special, anointed people. Yeah. But is there any clue as to what they may have said? Well, if you, if you look at some of the other problems in Corinth, I was just, my next CAC article is going to be on understanding the judgment passage in 1 Corinthians 11, so I've been all week in, in Corinthians. Now, in 1 Corinthians 11, when you see the schisms there, the issue was sociological. Some people were, were considered themselves better. I mean, this would be just the opposite of the uh, parable that I did. Remember the, the guy, the rich guy that invited everybody over and then they wouldn't come? Well, they were doing this kind of thing in Corinth where the people would have their own private meal with their rich friends and the poor Christians would have to sit out in another room and have very little. And that was their idea of communion. So you had this arrogance and social stratification that was going on in Corinth because somehow their Christ raised your social status. It's sort of like this health and wealth. Oh, I, I think that you could maybe go to the passages yeah. in Acts because what okay. happens is in Acts, they're preaching an elevation of the Jewishness and the Jewish temple system in Mosaic law, and that's what they're bringing to the rest of the world is we're going to make you the Messianic kingdom is this Jewishness and the Messianic kingdom that we're preaching is obeying the law, and the Messianic kingdom that we're preaching comes back to our temple. So it's, it's Yeah, that's true. That's true. But there was also this pride and arrogance that was obvious. Because remember Paul says, boasting can only be in the Lord. And it says, remember Paul says, remember your calling, brethren, not many noble. Okay? These guys were elevating things that aren't gospel-centric. Okay, the things that you needed to have to have status in their eyes, they really have nothing to do with the gospel. That, that was going on. And there's also, remember Paul says, we no longer know Christ after the flesh? That's an interesting statement in this context. 
They had a Christ after the flesh. In other words, emphasizing the Jewish miracle-working Christ and not the cross. That's what I think. Okay, now, here, turn with me to Acts chapter 24. 21. Yeah, 21.17. This is part of our reconstruction. And I think that we even can see here why the book of Hebrews is in the Bible. I think it helps us understand Hebrews. 21.17. This is about when he finally gets there. All Remember all the stuff about the collection? It's in Romans. It's in 1 Corinthians. It's in 2 Corinthians. He, in Acts, he's taking a collection. And he's, going, and he's doing so hoping that there isn't a schism where there's a Jewish church that keeps the law of Moses and a Gentile church that doesn't. That's what he's trying to head off, I believe, from the collection. Now let's see what happens when he gets there with it. 21.17, there it is. And when, and when we, notice Luke was accompanying him, and when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And now the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. And after he had greeted them, verse 19, he began to relate one by one the things God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So the issue of the Gentile ministry is on the table. 20, and when they heard it, they began glorifying God. Now this would be James and the elders. And they said to him, you see, brother, now look at this is the key right here. You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. Christians. And they are all zealous for the law. The th- there were thousands in the Jerusalem church who were zealous for the law. In other words, they don't agree with Paul's ministry. They love Moses, and they weren't agreeing with the, the Apostolic Council of Acts 15. That's what I believe. That's, I believe that these people rejected the Council of Acts 15. They reject Paul because Paul was accused of telling not only Gentiles, but Jews, that they did not have to keep the law of Moses. That's the issue. Why don't you read Acts 15? Because I think that's poor unless you don't. All right. Let's go back to Acts 15. Now, this was about whether the Gentiles would have to keep the law. All right? Verse 6, Acts 15. And the apostles and elders came together to look into this matter. And after they had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days... God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of God, should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. So he said, we couldn't bear it. When we were under the law, we couldn't bear it. It was, it was a yoke that was too difficult. Of course, we know the law is a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. So why put them back under that? Well, we believe that we're saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they are also. We're saved in the same way. That, that puts the, give, gives the lie to this two-gospel theory that I wrote about. Right there, it says it's not true. There's not two Gospels, there's one. They're saved in the same way. There's not some separate Jewish Gospel. Verse 12, And all of the multitude kept silent, and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. 
And after they stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After these things I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen, I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, in order that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles are called by my name, said the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. So the, the Old Testament said that the Gentiles were going to come. Therefore, this is James now, who is the leader in Jerusalem. Therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are returning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they should abstain from things contaminated by idols from fornication is what is strangled and from blood. And that was the decision. Now, I believe that when we're back here now in 21... Um, 17 through 21, it says here, and they, they have been told about you. Now let's go back to 20 and 21. And when they heard it, they began glorifying God, as I said. You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, and they are zealous for the law. There's the issue. They're zealous for the law. A true convert is not zealous for the law. He should be zealous for Christ. Okay? When you get delivered, when you come to Christ... He says, take my yoke upon me and learn of me. Take my yoke upon me. And what happened in Matthew after Jesus said, take my yoke upon me and I will give you rest? There was a big battle about Sabbath keeping. And Jesus was accused of being a Sabbath breaker because they wanted to portray that. So coming to Jesus is how you keep Sabbath, not keeping Sabbath. I'm going to argue that next Sunday when I teach about the commandment on that. All right, let's go on now. Okay, so they're zealous for the law. Verse 21, And they have been told about you that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children nor walk according to the customs. Well, it's not exactly right, but it's close. What Paul preached was that you cannot require circumcision as part of the gospel. And that would be true for Jew or Gentile. If they wanted to do that, they're free. He didn't tell them you cannot circumcise your children. He told them that you can't require it. Yes, Troy. What about Acts 16.3 where Paul has Timothy get circumcised? Well, that's why this is going on because he's trying to get rid of the dispute because it gets, it gets even more. I'll read on. He does even more Jewish stuff than that. And he's doing it not because it's required but because he's trying to stave off a church split. Yes? And the, the translation notes from that Bible talked about this. Uh, in that verse, they say that uh, these Jews tried to stay close to their traditions after they got saved. That's what yep. we're saying. Yep. And then in it's Acts 16, it referred to Acts 16, 3 and 4. And um, what were the de- decrees, you think, in 16, 4 that Paul was, uh, they had decided upon by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for these people to observe? Was some of those Jewish traditions? or Well, was it, it, no, it's Acts 15, that they did not have to that the Gentiles were not required to do it. The Jews are free to do it, but they can't make a law out of it. It's the same today. It's the same today. You can have your children circumcised, but you can't claim that God required it. You can go to church on Saturday and worship Christ, but you can't claim that it's a requirement. If you want to eat according to what the Old Testament laws were, because that's how you want to eat, you're free to do it. But if you teach it as a law, you're a heretic. All right? Yes. If you teach that you approach God 
better because you do the Jewish customs, you have become a Judaizer in the thing that Paul is yep. Paul's coming against. And that, right. when they, that's what the Jews in Jerusalem were doing. They were equating, they were quasi, they're believers and zealous for the law in that, in that way. And that's why they're opposing Paul. Exactly. And that's why the book of Hebrews says what it does. The book of Hebrews is attacking the same problem. And it was probably written to these same people, these thousands who wanted to be zealous for the law. Eventually, at some point, they decided just to go back to temple Judaism. But that's what the book of Hebrews is fighting. Don't do that. This is not how you draw near to God. That's the issue. Let me, let me go on here just a second. Now, notice what Paul does. He does something out of character because I believe that the collection and what Paul does next is his final effort to stave off a split that would destroy the church in Jerusalem other than James and a few elders. All right? He's going to try one more time to stop this from happening. All right? He brought his gift. It doesn't even mention here about the gift, not until later. Let's go on. Verse 21. So you're telling the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. Well, he was telling them they weren't required to follow the law of Moses. And that's true. He was saying that. Absolutely he was saying that. Now here was their idea to try to solve the problem. Starting with verse 23. Therefore do this that we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take them and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses in order that they may shave their heads and all will know that there is nothing to the things which they have been told about you, but that you yourself also walk orderly, keeping the law. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we wrote, having decided that they should abstain from meat sacrificed to idols, from blood, and from what is strangled, and from fornication. R- recalling that. Okay, so that's just for the Gentiles. Take this and do this. In verse 27, And when the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up, all of the multitude and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law in this place. And besides, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and defiled the holy place. For they had formerly, formerly seen Trophimus the Ephesian in the city, and they supposed Paul brought him in. And there, so there's this big eruption that ends up with Paul having to be rescued by being arrested, or they would have killed him. And we think that there were Christians that were involved with this. That the only people standing for Paul in the church was James and the elders. And they did their best to stave off what they saw coming because there were thousands of believers zealous for the law. And the hope was that if Paul took this vow and came in a Jewish fashion, that they would say this is not, you know, would settle the issue. And it did not. And we have the book of Hebrews as evidence that this apostasy was right on the verge of happening so that the book of Hebrews is necessary because the Jerusalem church was going apostate. The church. As far as application, all these many, many things that you've been teaching us to protect us from these false gospels and being led away from Christ and the Spirit, in application, I've been studying this a lot lately where you can actually see this all around us in the modern-day church just like they did back then, and that is... It always produces the same spirit in the individual, and it's a, a carnal confidence that John Owen talks about, uh-huh. which is the absolute inverse of the Sermon on the Mount, 
when blessed are the humble, blessed are the uh-huh. pure in spirit, uh-huh. blessed is the one that thirsts for righteousness. And so you have this adult spirit that is always moving away from Christ and the Holy Spirit. And it's everywhere if you, if you actually yeah. stop to yeah. look for it. It's apostasy. Absolutely. And it always produces arrogance because somebody believes they have a better gospel than the one once for all delivered to the saints. Yes. You know, I was thinking, I was wishing here that it was also mentioned by Paul about what happened after Christ said, it is finished. God split that veil. Mm -hmm. That's very important because there is no need for any man to go into the inner room. Christ Mm -hmm. did it all. Amen. Amen. And you know, uh, I was just studying that because we're doing Hebrews radio. And... I looked up that word draw near, and just to confirm what you said, the word draw near, pros erkomai, is used in Hebrews for drawing near to God through Christ by faith. But I, I, I ran the Septuagint search on my computer, which takes a while because it's a big document, and I found pros erkomai, and a number of times it's used for the Levitical drawing near of the priest. So, that, so it means coming to God. So the t- temple, once that curtain veil is ripped in two, now you only draw near through Christ, not through the blood of bulls and goats or not through some Jewish means. And so this claiming that you have to keep the law to be a Christian is an attack against the gospel itself. And that's how Hebrews saw it. Okay, yes, Paul. We can see where it came full circle, where the initial... I, or, I mean, there's an irony here where initially Paul was trying to save the Jewishness at holding the cloaks of those that stoned Stephen, and all of a sudden it has all come full circle, and all these people are trying to save the Jewishness, and they think by killing Paul. By killing Paul. Hey, good. That's a good read. Good. Good reading. Stewed reading award. <laughs> there's the coffee. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Doesn't it seem strange, though, that Paul's been basically saying this is about Christ, and then James challenges him and says, why don't you go keep the law and show everybody you are, and he does it? Yeah, it is strange, and I think think the only reason Paul did it was he thought it was a last-ditch effort to save the church in Jerusalem from splitting from the Gentile church. Because if you read about that collection, how hard did he work on that? It's all, it's all through. He's trying to save the church, and, it, and I say it didn't work. The Church of Jerusalem went totally Jewish, and they probably got wiped out in 70 A.D. And I think it's when you just read the passage when Paul comes there and meets them, he says that we received him gladly in 21, and it's almost, there's no mention of money. You think, did they get robbed on the way or something like that? Is that why they were so angry? But if you read in 24:17, yes, it actually read does that. talk that he, he delivered the money and he still got beat. Yeah, here, look, here Acts 24:17, right here. This is the only mention of that money after he actually got there, and it was it was mentioned all these places going there. Like the collection is so important. There's two chapters in Second Corinthians about it. So then when he gets there, where's the money? What happened? Here's what it says. Before who was who was this? Festus. Festus. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings in which they found me occupied in a temple, having been purified without any crowd or uproar. But there were certain Jews from Asia who ought to have been present before you 
to make accusation if they had anything against me. So he said, I came in here with these alms and the whole city turns against me, stirred up by these Jews from Asia. And there are thousands, see, if there's thousands of Christian Jews in Jerusalem zealous for the law, why didn't they stand up for Paul? Where were they? Why didn't they protect him? Why weren't they there? Because they were against him. And James and the elders knew it. And the James and the elders knew the truth. But we know James was martyred. Josephus even writes about the martyrdom of James. And I believe that after James martyred him, all that was left was a Jewish church zealous for the law that probably just stayed there in 70 A.D. because they didn't listen to Jesus telling them to flee when the armies come. Does this all making any sense? Okay. It's helping me. I'm trying to understand this, and I haven't before. It's being more sense now than it ever did before. And why would Paul do something that is against his nature, which is take a vow and go into the temple in a Jewish manner? The only thing I can think of is that he was that concerned that this church don't split off. That was a huge concern for him, and he was hoping to regain status in the eyes of those thousands of believers so that he could teach them the truth and get the church straightened out there. But instead, they turn against him, and he's taken away, and he ends up in Rome and preaches the gospel there. That's the end of Jerusalem as far as the headquarters of anything Christian. Uh, Eric, oh, uh, yes. Um, I just am finishing reading uh, Boyce's uh, commentary on Acts. And he teaches in this verse 26 here okay. that when we read it, it says, Then Paul took the men and the next day purified himself along with them, went into the temple, giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each of them. And he says that Paul was going to the temple to offer, offer a sacrifice. And God interfered, and that before he could offer that sacrifice... The crowd stirred up, and he was taken away and so arrested, so, so he, he could not complete that sacrifice. That's, that's and really, an, you know, he was going to go against everything he had stood for yeah, to that point, and God true. didn't let him do it. That's true. That, uh, very interesting reading. Very interesting reading. And, and I don't think Paul would have even consider that if it wasn't for his, his concern for the church not being split. But um, yet, anyhow, yes. I was going to mention, you know, Troy mentioned Acts 16.3, where Timothy is circumcised. And also, uh, just to address Paul when he takes this oath to fulfill the law, I was thinking of 1 Corinthians uh, 9, where Paul says he's going to be all things to all people. And so in like verse 20, he says, To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I may win the Jews. To those under the law, who are under the law, I became one under the law, though I myself am not under the law. The point being is there's two categories. One is offense, and the other is preaching the gospel. So he did some of these Judaizing things, not because they're part of the gospel, but to limit unnecessary offense. Yeah. So true. when he went into their presence, but never did it enter part of the gospel. No, um, I, I'm so sure that's the case. Categories. I'm yeah. sure that's the case. Yeah. But the thing that's new in my mind was that he was doing it not just for the Jews, he was doing it for the Christian Jews. Yeah. yeah. He had a problem with thousands of Christians. Yeah, that's right. And they didn't come to his aid. Where were they? They weren't there because they turned against Paul and his gospel. So, what's that got to do with Second Corinthians? 
I believe that the super apostles, as they're called in verse 5, 2 Corinthians 11 5, came from Jerusalem as representatives of those opponents of Paul that we knew were there in Jerusalem, trying to Judaize the church in Corinth. That's what we're saying. That's why I went through all of this reconstruction. So to identify the false apostles who came to Corinth. Now, you might think, why would this be such a draw? Well, Patrick, did you buy my last argument that I sent you? Hebrews, argument by analogy? Uh, No. Oh, nuts. I'll have to try again. My argument was that Hebrews would apply to similar things later in church history like the Roman Catholic Church, not only Temple Judaism. And it would apply by analogy, by genus. Okay, I still think I'm right, by the way. Okay. Um, Because if you you look at the book of Hebrews, isn't Roman Catholicism doing all of the things that Hebrews is saying Christ is, they made a version of down on on the earth. Okay, they make a priest. They make a vicar of Christ, who's in a sense a high priest. They make a blood sacrifice on the earth. And they make cathedrals that are like a temple because in their ostentatiousness. And I would say the book of Hebrews very much applies to refuting the Roman Catholic Church. All right? I'm surprised they didn't. I'm surprised they allowed the Hebrews in the canon, frankly. But um, therefore, my point is this. The, the, this lure never goes away. There is something about this law-keeping that attracts people. Even though it was a yoke nobody could ever bear. There's a group over here in St. Paul who are Christians who are Torah only. And they teach you keep the law, you keep Sabbath, and you just study Torah. That's all you do. These are Judaizers. They're, they're anathematized. They're anathematized. Why would anybody do that? It's a seducing spirit. It's another Jesus, another spirit, another gospel. Okay? And anything that would detract from the message of the cross would do the same thing. The only way you receive the spirit, the true spirit, is through the crucified Christ who we confess through the work of the cross in our heart. We're we're saved. We receive the spirit. The only way we know that we have the true spirit is that he causes us to confess Christ. Okay, We confess Christ, the crucified Christ, the real Christ, the biblical Christ. Now, all of these other things. Here, get this one. This is very important. You cannot know you had the Holy Spirit by how you feel. You cannot know that. A guy sent me a scathing email rebuking me for being nasty by refuting wonderful, nice guy Ed Smith in Theophostic Ministry. How dare you say those things about Ed Smith? I know he's a nice guy. I said, I, didn't, I, didn't say, I don't care if he's nice or not nice. But here's the deal. The spirit of Christ that Ed Smith tells you that you're going to get is a spirit who helps you do divination. He comes into you and he gives you a revelation about the meaning of a first memory event that may or may not have happened. So I, so I sent an email back. I, I, that's a divination. I'm against it. And then he said, well, how can you tell me that it's wrong? Because I used to be an angry man 
And after that, I did the theophosics. Now I'm happy. <laughs> Beloved, they don't get it. Do you think Satan would be willing to make you happy to keep you away from the gospel? Do you think Satan would be willing to be a, seducing, a seducer who will give you a different spirit, and when you get that different spirit, it makes you feel better than you felt when you had the Holy Spirit? Oh, yes. Why wouldn't he do that? Absolutely. You don't know it's the Holy Spirit because you feel peaceful. You don't know it's the Holy Spirit because you're happy. You don't know it's the Holy Spirit because you have warm, gushy feelings all, all over and tingliness all over your body. And burning, yeah, burning in your bosom, the Mormons tell you you're going to get. You know it's the Holy Spirit when what happens to you is you confess Christ. Your mouth comes open and you confess Christ. And you, and you worship Him and praise Him and preach the true gospel. That's the test of spirits. And I, I, what, that one sermon, I, how many verses did I have that all said the same thing? Verse after verse after verse after verse after verse. You can feel crummy, horrible, unhappy, and down. And if you open your mouth and you confess Christ, that's the Holy Spirit. All right? The Holy Spirit is not a feeling. It's the Spirit of Christ. Thank you for uh, allowing me to share this reconstruction of uh, what happened in Jerusalem. God bless you. See you upstairs.